Good afternoon. Welcome to the COVID-19 webinar series. My name is Tim Murgo. I'm the current chair of Education Committee for CHEST, and I'm here on behalf of the COVID-19 task force. I want to start by saying a few words about this group. It's a very diverse group of faculty at CHEST that was created by Stephanie Levine and Stephen Simpson, the presidents of CHEST, about 15 months ago. It was an initiative as our organizational response to the pandemic with the intent to curate knowledge and uh, bring some order in that chaos of information or misinformation that we were dealing with in March and April of 2020. Um, with the amazing staff support, uh, this group has created a monumental amount of work. And uh, we invite you to check our website, the resource page, where you will find um, very easy to use infographics, a summary of the literature on uh, different subject matters and recordings of the webinars like the one today. It is my pleasure to introduce the panel today. We will be discussing complications from cancer, including pleural effusion, airway obstruction and immune related pneumonitis. We have uh, Dr. Mary Jo Fiedler, who is an associate professor of um, medicine at Rush University in Chicago, where she's also section chief of medical oncology. Dr. Fiedler is an accomplished researcher in immunotherapy and uh, TKIs for lung cancer and head and neck cancers. Um, we have Dr. Uh, David Feller-Kabman, a professor of medicine and interventional pulmonologist, who is a section chief at uh, Dartmouth-Hitchcock um, University. And Dr. Feller-Kabman is also an author of many guidelines and statements pertinent to management of malignant pleural effusion. And we have uh, Professor Erica Dell of Mayo Clinic Rochester, uh, master educator and clinicians, an author of many papers on airway obstruction and on a personal note, a friend and a mentor. So the learning objectives, there are a few for each particular topic, but overall we will address these topics, pneumonitis, malignant effusion and malignant obstruction. And we'll talk about diagnosis and management and how COVID-19 pandemic impacted um, this, um, uh, our practices in regards to these three disorders. So I wanna set the stage by highlighting a, a few papers that have been, um, have been published in the last few months in regards to COVID-19 and uh, malignancies. So we have learned that the mortality of patients with cancer and COVID is much worse than either COVID alone or cancer alone. And that's especially relevant to uh, thoracic oncology. That was a paper uh, published by one of my current colleagues um, on medical oncologist while she was still working in Italy, Dr. Um, Graciano. Now, because of the delayed appointments, uh, decrease in screening, um, and um, we we're seeing now a decrease in the number of new lung cancer diagnosis. There was one paper that showed that if you look at the month of March and June 2020, compared with 2019, the number of new diagnoses of lung cancer has decreased by approximately 30%. A few papers from UK and Australia uh, predict that we will be dealing with a higher mortality and huge economic costs, likely because of a state shift that we will be seeing uh, for lung cancer. 
There was a question uh, from uh, one of the participants. As you know, you had the ability to submit questions uh, when you registered for, for this webinar, and we have a few of them. But I will start with one that um, I think it will start the conversation. And that was, did the pandemic have any effect on your procedural volume for managing malignancy or on overall the number of patients with the lung cancer that, um, that you encountered in your practice? So how about we start with uh, Dr. Mary Jo Fiddler? What was the impact of the pandemic on your thoracic oncology practice in regards oh, to volume? Yeah. So uh, at my institution at Rush, there was a certainly a temporary hold on elective procedures, which lasted for um, quite some time. In general, they tried to push through, you know, lung cancer surgeries and, and some of the other um, surgeries that you know were thought to really have an impact on patients' mortality. Um, we did we did have a little bit of a dip in volume. If you look at the total numbers, they weren't off by by too too much. And if you look at the oncology, our infusions uh, were down. By about ten percent, um, with with the COVID um, visits shifted to over sixty percent virtual, and we had patients who were getting their labs drawn, having a virtual visit, and then just coming in for infusions if they needed it. And uh, for patients on maintenance type therapies, um, for example, especially the immune checkpoint inhibitors, if they had been on their treatment for more than two years, we were really pushing um, to discontinue because the pros seemed to be outweighed by the cons. And at that time, we didn't have. Uh, any real safety information about uh, immune checkpoint inhibitors and COVID. Um, since then, the same um, authors you mentioned of the Terrible study did put out a subset analysis showing that immunotherapy doesn't have a huge, doesn't appear to have a huge impact on COVID related mortality, um, but certainly keeping people out of the medical center um, seemed to make sense. And we also had to close our satellite infusion clinics. Uh, we have two satellites in the western suburbs, and the hospital needed the IV poles, um, so we, we pared down. Um, so those are the main main changes that we had. Well, thank you for sharing that, Dr. Feller-Kopman. So I don't want to use the word lucky uh, for our procedural volume, but unlike a lot of the other surgical subspecialties um, where they took a really, really big hit, um, and we're actually um, not doing any surgeries and redeployed to some of the COVID ICUs in our institution. Uh, we really tried to push that lung cancer um, and pleural disease were tier one procedures. Uh, these are patients that really needed to have their continued evaluation. So though our, our numbers didn't drop so much, the process and the impact on the whole team was really quite significant. Um, everything from registration to patient preparation to getting them in the room to room turnover time, um, making sure that you're in a negative pressure room to recovery, to even having a loved one in recovery as the patient's waking up from anesthesia. It really impacted that whole process more than the numbers. Dr. Dell. Yeah, it it, um, it did have an impact on the overall number of procedures that we were doing. We tried, as Dr. Feller Kopman just articulated, that we tried to prioritize based upon the medical need as seen at the urgency of the disease process. Uh, but we could not handle the volume because of the process changes. We went probably 50% capacity for several months 
in order to just meet the demands of the the um, uh, infectious disease requirements to try and reduce the transmission. It was particularly uh, difficult in the beginning where we weren't quite sure of the transmission. If you remember, we were fearful that this was more than just aerosolized transmission. So it impacted a lot. Once that became evident and we got into the groove, uh, I think we were able to ma maintain and get back to our volumes fairly quickly. Uh, but there's no question that we had to prioritize some patients lower than we would have done in the past. The comment about stave shifting is going to be an interesting one. It's, 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 um, it's probably the combination of a combined slowdown rather than individual practice slowdowns because the, the people themselves, I think, were reluctant to go out where in the past we may have seen them. So a combination of the capacity being decreased, but also people's desire not to get out and be potentially exposed. Um, that's an end, I mean, it's a direct impact of the pandemic, but it's an indirect impact of the facility or the capacity changes, I think. Well, thank you for sharing your, your institutional experience. Um, now let's move into the subtopics for today. So Dr. Mary Jo Fiddler will uh, lead the conversation on immune-related uh, pneumonitis diagnosis and management and uh, how COVID can mimic this entity. I will stop sharing the screen for Dr. Fiddler to take over. Uh, thank you for uh, having me participate in this panel. It's nice to see um, treatment perspectives uh, outside of my oncology bubble and thoracic surgery bubble. <laughs> um, so uh, the learning objectives for this part of the program are to list the diagnostic criteria for immune-related pneumonitis, identify and describe management strategies for immune-related pneumonitis based on severity, review guidelines and consensus statements um, for any um, changes that may pertain to the COVID-19 pandemic, and also highlight how the COVID-19 has impacted diagnosis and management of immune-related uh, pneumonitis. I have a, a case study. Um, so this is an 83-year-old woman who was diagnosed in December of 2020 with stage 3 T2N0 squamous cell carcinoma of the left lower lobe. She underwent definitive chemotherapy and radiation with carboplatin and paclitaxel that finished March 4, 2021. She began consolidation dervalumab April 13, 2021. And shortly after her first dose, she was admitted for ex exacerbation of sciatica, which sort of had been building since decondition being deconditioned from chemo radiation. Um, but promptly she developed uh, after admission fevers to 102 um, degrees and, and she had a, a CT scan. Um, her oxygenation requirements um, did not dip considerably. Um, the scan was uh, mostly done, done because of the, the fever. Um, I'm not clever enough to know how to uh, do a scroll, but I tried to capture a, uh, an image that showed the bilateral infiltrates. Again, her tumor was in the left lower lobe, um, but clearly these infiltrates are outside of that, that particular lobe. Um, so we have the differential diagnosis, and I was going to um, see what our panel members thought about the differential diagnosis and next steps that they would take. Um, so the ones I thought of, the first one being an acute infectious, sorry for the typo, infectious process, radiation pneumonitis, immune checkpoint inhibitor pneumonitis. Um, Dr. Feller-Kotman, you want to comment? Sure. So um, 
I think it's really difficult, uh, especially in this past year, to differentiate uh, checkpoint inhibitor pneumonitis and acute infection. Um, the radiographic presentations of both of those, especially with COVID, are extremely variable um, and can significantly overlap. I think if, if you go back to the CT images, I personally would put radiation pneumonitis slightly lower on the list because it doesn't have the typical line that disobeys anatomic boundaries. Um, and you're also getting some contralateral uh, ground glass inflammation in the right upper lobe there. Now, that's not to say that can never happen, uh, but it would be lower on my list. So then the question is, um, do you need a diagnosis uh, to guide therapy? And if you do, how are you going to get that? Um, bronchoscopy is clearly a, a way that you could evaluate for infection. You have to weigh the risks of the procedure both. And, and this is one of the key things over this past year is previously we always uh, really weighed the risks of the procedure to the patient. Uh, but now all of a sudden, especially early in the pandemic, we were really concerned about the risk to staff um, and our trainees. So at Hopkins, for example, I had just at Dartmouth about five weeks now, but at Hopkins, uh, we basically made aerosol generating procedures, uh, a tending level procedure. Um, there was a pulmonologist, a nurse, and an anesthesiologist in the room. There weren't trainees, there weren't students, uh, there weren't any extraneous, I don't want to say extraneous, but additional people who would normally be there to help for the procedure. Um, it was really quite limited. So we have to weigh the risks of the procedure to the patient as well as support staff. Um, and specifically, how would the results change management? So if I was able to uh, do the BAL and there was no infection, would you guys decrease or de-escalate antibiotics? Um, likewise, if it was a, um, a more of a lymphocytic infiltrate, uh, would you continue the immunotherapy? Probably not. So uh, this is where I think a pre-procedure multidisciplinary discussion is really essential um, in, in talking about how a procedure will change, how the results of a procedure will change management. I'd love to hear what Dr. Adell has to say. Eric, Adele? That was pretty thorough. I'm not sure I can add a lot of, of detail to the conundrum that this has been giving all of us uh, in our team. We, we actually have developed that multidisciplinary team. So we share, we as a a positive of COVID, we've developed a daily 30-minute lung cancer multidisciplinary tumor board. And it's intended for rapid case presentations to assist access to treatment, but also quickly turning around. And some of these cases, I would say we see one or two a week at least of this, this situation. I would put in, uh, Dr. Fiedler, maybe the concept, I mean, the idea that aspiration should also be considered in this patient because of that patulous esophagus, but that I'm just a little bit biased toward it. But I do like the question that, that David asked regarding, you know, first thing is, what are you, what are we going to do as far as treatment if we rule out? Because we can't rule this in that I'm aware of right now with any diagnostic testing. So I would 
I would guess uh, that most of us would rule out an infectious process and then empirically hold the the, uh, immunotherapy and plus or minus steroids. Is is that the consensus? Or are we going to find that out as we go through the slide deck? So that's right, Dr. Fiedler. Tell us, how do we diagnose this and how do we manage it? Okay, so I can uh, tell you, go back to the differential diagnosis slide, and I agree with Dr. Philip Kopman. I, I did not think that this was radiation pneumonitis. Uh, I think it went um, too uh, far outside of the radiation portals. It was within the realm of radiation pneumonitis that four to 12 weeks after completing radiation, so it did fit in terms of time course. Um, the Despite her CT scan looking um, pretty terrible, she had relatively low volume of symptoms. Her biggest problem was her, her pain that was unrelated with the sciatica. Um, so uh, we did not uh, cover her with antibiotics. We had done a point of cure uh, COVID PCR, but <clears throat> excuse me, um, especially with her respiratory symptoms not being 100% typical of pneumonitis, um, we did request a, a bronchoscopy. And uh, so she had a PCR testing from bronchoscopy, which was negative for um, the viral panel, including uh, COVID-19. And uh, she was started on a milligram per kilogram of steroids um, for, uh, for pneumonitis. Uh, you know, I hadn't seen too many cases. She was symptomatic in the sense that she had a fever, which started the whole ball rolling. <laughs> but, you know, for, the, for the, her CT scans, her, she had oxygenation decreased a bit after, after her bronchoscopy, but I was thought more to be from anesthesia related. Um, so uh, uh, immune checkpoint inhibitor pneumonitis can be focal or diffuse. Um, infiltration of the lung parenchyma, typically diagnosed uh, by looking at CT scans. Uh, there are no pathognomonic clinical radiographic or pathologic features. Um, and uh, the incidence uh, on, especially on the PDL1 inhibitors, um, is uh, up to 5%. The high grade incidence is um, not too bad. It's less than two, it's generally 0.8 to 2%. Um, and if you add the CTLA-4 antibody um, or use CTLA-4-based um, monoclonal antibodies, the incidence of pneumonitis is a little bit lower than what we see with the uh, PDL1, PD-1 immune checkpoint inhibitors. And the onset could be uh, pretty much anywhere, um, but the average onset is about 2.5 to 21 months. And um, I found this nice chart uh, that has checkboxes with the immune checkpoint inhibitors on the left and, and COVID-19 symptoms on the right. Um, so we can see, certainly see fever, dyspnea, cough in both, um, diarrhea. Um, you can't see with the immune checkpoint inhibitors that would typically not be from the pneumonitis, but from another immune-related effect uh, of the immune checkpoint inhibitors, uh, but not as much uh, GI symptoms um, otherwise as have been reported with COVID-19. And my understanding also is that um, the incidence of pneumonitis, although in the large initial studies was only up to 5%, a lot of the post-market data suggests that it could be even higher in in the 15 to 20%. It's typically with the low grades. Um, It it could be a little higher. And, uh, you know, I don't know in the post-marketing data, for example, I see patients, and we'll talk about it a little bit with some of the flows you know, that have zero symptoms. They come in for a routine restaging CT scan and their CAT scan shows a few little patchy, tiny infiltrates. Is that really a grade one? Probably not, you know, so it, you know, I think it's, and even though it makes me a little nervous, I usually continue the immune checkpoint inhibitor if it's very, very slight. 
Um, but if you call it a grade one, then then you're probably better off holding. Um, the other uh, unknown, I would still say, although we do have long-term follow-up with the uh, Pacific trial, which was a phase three trial randomizing patients who receive chemotherapy and radiation to immune checkpoint inhibitor or placebo. And I think everyone was nervous that uh, the pneumonitis would be much higher, if, especially if there was an overlap with the radiation fields. And uh, it really wasn't uh, too bad. Interestingly, I feel like uh, clinically, I see more side effects with dervalumab after chemo radiation, but not necessarily in the lung. A lot of dramatic hypothyroid fatigue, you know, joint problems. Um, the pneumonitis incidence was really only a, the, especially the grade three, was only a percent or two higher in the in the treatment arm compared with placebo. So that was encouraging. Any other comments, Dr. Margo? No. Nope. No. Okay. Um, so this is a busy uh, table, and this. Uh, uh, Dr. Feller Kopman was a co-author on, on this uh, paper, um, and it's it took the ASCO, it's similar to the ASCO guidelines that came out in 2018 for uh, immune related events guidelines and um, really modified it and honed it in, on, in the post uh, COVID era. Um, so uh, we can see some similar features to those original guidelines where grade one, as we were just talking about, you know, clinically is asymptomatic with radiographic changes um, I don't know if the patient I presented would be considered a grade one because she did have a fever, although I think in general, they think more of you know respiratory symptoms. Um, but for grade one, the recommendation is to hold the immunotherapy. Um, and it's really a case by case testing for uh, COVID-19, although I think most of us would, would probably run the test. Um, and then to you know follow up and if the symptoms get worse, treat as a grade two. Um, if the symptoms resolve in a month, most of us, if especially if there's meaningful radiographic changes, would repeat a CT scan be before resuming the immunotherapy. But typically not a reason to discontinue immune checkpoint inhibitors um, in, in our patients. Uh, for grade two, we have clinically symptomatic um, restricting uh, instrumental activities of living and uh, we should screen these patients for COVID-19 and uh, consider consultation and certainly hold the immunotherapy. Um, but usually uh, we would start uh, prednisone or steroids at this point, typically one milligram per kilogram. Um, I don't always do empiric antibiotics um, for the grade two, usually I do not. And uh, the important thing is to follow these patients as they, they can get worse. And if there's no improvement, then the rec recommendation is to increase the, the treatment to a grade three um, level. For those patients who are COVID-19 positive, um, there is a recommendation to con consider discontinuing the corticosteroids. And I'd love the, our pulmonologist on the panel to comment on uh, steroid use uh, with uh, what you call grade two pulmonary symptoms, whether they're from COVID or, or the pneumonitis. I mean, it's interesting. Um, uh, it's interesting that uh, this paper mentioned that because uh, maybe this was before the data came became available on on dexamethasone for yeah, that's uh, exactly right, Tim. Steroid induced pneumonitis uh, for uh, I'm sorry, COVID induced pneumonitis, which now we treat for ten days, so dexamethasone six milligrams, and in fact. Uh, there was just uh, just yesterday um, our section shared an, an email with a new paper showing that methylprednisolone may be actually just as good 
um, for uh, for COVID as well. Uh, it's not a very powerful study, but there is that suggestion in the literature. So maybe they get treated the same. Um, I do have one question before um, we're going to move on to the next topic, Dr. Fiedler. Um, there was one question from participants, and I want to make sure we address their needs. Um, do you think that COVID infection uh, accelerates tumor progression? It's somewhat tangential to, to the pneumonitis yeah, story, but it is an oncology question. <laughs> yeah, it's hard to know. I don't know if that data was captured well in the terrible, just, you know, we participated in just, you know, answering the questions. I don't know if we'd get the data from the terrible study in that. Um, anecdotally, I would say um, it's really hard to know because when you get the COVID diagnosis, the therapy is typically put on hold, especially cytotoxic chemotherapy, when you know that that would portend to a worse outcome for COVID for lung cancer patients. Um, radiation therapy is often continued, um, especially if it's definitive and they're just treated at the end of the day but chemotherapy is usually put on hold. I would put the immunotherapy on hold um, just because we have some reassuring data, but it, it doesn't make sense to add that into the mix um, at the time of an active COVID infection. And, you know, we had had um, you know, restrictions on patients coming back into clinic, you know, to receive, you know, their next treatments for a while. And then when the volume of new infections um, dropped a little bit, we were able to get people back a little sooner and then they were still treated in isolation. Um, but I, I would, I can't say that I saw someone who get, got a COVID infection and then all of a sudden their lung cancer was worse when I wouldn't have expected it to, but I think that would be a hard question to answer. Um, the last point about the management of, of these patients, I'd like to um, get input from the other panelists is um, if there is a grade three um, before toxicity and it's not improving on, on steroids after 48 to 72 hours, the recommendation is to escalate. Usually with TNF inhibitors, you can use IVIG, some other, other immunosuppressants. And especially with the TNF alpha inhibitors, it's recommended to have ruled out tuberculosis. Um, so our hospital is sending quantiferin, which takes a few days. Um, so it's just something that I've kept in mind. And if I have a patient with respiratory complaints on immunotherapy, I'm asking the hospital to send it off right away in case they get worse. Um, there may be some rapid other TP tests you guys are using. So just a quick comment and then that'll be the end of my part. Dr. Adele, do you have any comment on that? Well, I, I don't have a lot of experience and I don't know the literature on escalation after steroids. By that time, they're generally in the ICU and they're pretty sick. It would be quantiferon is pretty rapid turnaround for the TB question once it's escalated. And I think that's, yeah. you can get that within 24, 48 hours at the most, I think. Um, yeah, ours is a little slower. Yeah, but but I think I think that when when you get past that stage, uh, I don't know. I'd be interested in in uh, David and Tim's response regarding the acceleration and what evidence we have that once they are not reacting to steroids in this situation, I would be worried we have the right diagnosis. Mm -hmm. I was going to say, I'm going to function as a panelist for a second year. Um, I have only seen people on steroids. I don't think I've seen alternative immunosuppressive drugs uh, for IO pneumonitis. Uh, maybe my colleagues from oncology have tried that, um, but not uh, patients I encountered in my clinic or in the ICU. Um, it is 327. Oh, I yes. want to make sure we well, have time for other quickly. topics. Uh, go ahead, Eric. We well, this, will... is, this is quick because I think the panel, I mean, the audience may be asking this if, if maybe or maybe not, maybe it's just me. But in these patients, uh, I try to get a COVID on all the BALs. Is that a practice that we would encourage, even though they're PCR negative, 
we add COVID to the BAL. Are others doing that? One big issue that came up, um, especially uh, early to mid pandemic, is that if you added the COVID testing to a BAL, it automatically triggered the patient into a PUI, a person under investigation, which means that if they were coming from a non-isolation room, they had to recover in isolation and then they couldn't go back to their standard floor room. So that, that, that was a, a big to do. Because uh, yes, I, I was very um, skeptical of how sensitive the nasal PCR was. And we all know that the BAL has a higher sensitivity. So we were sending those on a lot of people, but then infection control uh, freaked out a little bit. Interesting. Floor nurses, yeah. Initially, we had a hard time getting it because it was not standardized. So we had some pushback. Um, but now um, it is done, especially if it's high in the differential diagnosis. We have anecdotal evidence maybe every few weeks when we do a lavage for other reasons. And uh, to our surprise, we diagnosed COVID by BAL, even though there were prior nasopharyngeal swabs that were negative. All right, let's move to the next topic. Uh, this discussion will be led by Dr. Feller-Kabman on the management of malignant pleural effusions during COVID times and uh, beyond. And there were a few questions from the audience, but Dr. Feller-Kabman, how about you give us a highlight on how you approach this topic today and uh, maybe a summary of the guidelines, and then we'll address a few questions. So uh, similar to our patients with presumed lung cancer, in which we really tried to make those a priority, I think patients with pleural disease had even a higher priority because they were acutely symptomatic. They, they couldn't breathe. Um, and I think one of the biggest impacts on our malignant pleural effusion service is really trying to get the patient in and then out of the hospital. Uh, patients were very reluctant to come in. Um, and, and we actually saw them, I think, at later stages of dyspnea than they would have presented beforehand. Part of that could have been that they weren't used to doing their normal activities. They weren't going to the grocery store uh, and doing the shopping. They were getting it delivered. Um, so they had tended to come in with less reserve. The other huge impact was that it was really our standard practice to do um, IPC education after initial placement with whoever's going to be helping care for the catheter. Um, and by hospital policy, those support people were basically not allowed to come in. Um, it wasn't really until mid-pandemic uh, that support people were allowed into the hospital. And I think because of that, despite us really trying to select patients who we thought could care for the catheter and would have the home support. And we were, you know, had the luxury of having our own um, interventional pulmonary nurses who would do the education before the procedure over the phone and with video conferencing. It's hard. Um, I'm not a big fan of the C1, do one, teach one methodology of teaching medical procedures, um, but I do think that seeing it and doing it uh, for a non-medical person really helps the learning curve. And we actually saw a bump in our IPC infection rate, I think directly attributable to the secondary effects of the COVID pandemic, not, not COVID itself, but the effect of not having the significant other come 
learn how to care for these catheters. So in terms of the options for managing malignant pleural effusion, Tim has nice, nicely listed six of these here. Um, and I don't think the decision tree has changed with COVID. Uh, we, we still really try to place emphasis on patient-centered outcomes. So we continue to have the discussion with the patient and the family about the, the pros and cons of each of these interventions. Uh, repeat thoracentesis is a, is a fine procedure, um, especially for those nearing the end of their life, but we know that there's almost 100% recurrence of pleural effusion and malignant pleural effusion within a month. So we don't use that as an option for patients who have an expected survival longer than that. We try to do a definitive pleural intervention, um, and that could be either placement of an IPC alone. Uh, number two, it could be uh, pleurodesis alone, uh, and that could either be number five or six, either with thoracoscopy and talc insufflation or talc slurry versus a chest tube. And then, of course, uh, combination approaches uh, where you're using a IPC with talc. Um, and the, the pros and cons of each of these haven't changed. Uh, we've nicely reviewed these uh, previously. The, the benefits of both approaches is that they work. Uh, dyspnea improves in uh, uh, over 90, 95% of patients treated with either. Um, IPCs tend to have a slightly higher complication rate in terms of um, uh, infection. Thoracoscopy and pleurodesis alone or just talc pleurodesis alone has a higher incidence of additional pleural procedures. Um, if you're doing uh, thoracoscopy and talc insufflation, uh, as long as patients are doing well, we will now do that as an outpatient. Uh, so a lot of these procedures can actually be shifted to the outpatient arena. Part of that is your support staff, your ability to communicate with the patients afterwards. So I, I, I don't think COVID has impacted that decision tree all that much, as much as it has impacted um, you know, the, the support care that patients can receive in the hospital. Thank you, Dr. David Fogelkopp. And uh, Dr. Adele, Dr. Fiedler, any comments on your institution's approaches to malignant effusion before I go through some questions from the audience? We have not seen that much of a difference in approach. And part of it has to do with we were allowing, and David brought up, and that's a good comment about not having an individual come in. We were allowing in the outpatient setting one member. We did restrict to nobody in the hospital, but in the outpatient setting, we felt we could control at the entrance and the exits and, this, and drew a good, do a decent job. The volume was down a lot because the rest of the services, we closed down for fear that we were going to overwhelm the hospital. But I don't think they compromised. I would ask and Mary Jo and David, if we haven't seen maybe some improvement in remote education preliminarily, what we started doing was sending stuff out to initially get people to understand the procedure that potentially, particularly the, the IPC is what I'm thinking of. And it was amazing how the nurses commented that we, they were better prepared coming in for their one-on-one. I can't say that's translated to anything other than maybe a little less anxiety, uh, but 
some of the forceful communication that we've done with tele might actually translate into more efficient and more effective ways as we go. Yeah, that, that's absolutely right. Um, but I think it's important also to realize that uh, you and I are perhaps practicing in the ivory tower where we have that support. Um, and I, I think that's actually a great point for any um, IPC program is that you really need that infrastructure to make it successful. You need the nursing support, not only to, for patient education, but to ensure that there's insurance pre-approval for the bottles and, and, and all that. Um, so I think for those programs that have that, I, I agree that tele component has significantly helped. Dr. David Feller-Cobman, there was a question from a participant that was submitted prior to the webinar um, in regards to the best chemical agents for pleural disease in case of malignant effusion. And I would add to that that uh, for a while, talc was not available on the market and people were talking about iodine and doxy. And um, can you share, summarize the literature in a, in a sentence or two? Sure. So I think all major societies uh, recommend talc as the pleurodesis agent of choice. So that is true from our combined um, American Thoracic Society, Surgical Thoracic Society, and Thoracic, uh, Society of Thoracic Radiology, um, Clinical Practice Guideline through the ATS. It's true through uh, Dr. Bibby uh, was the lead author on the um, BTS guidelines that were published in ERJ. Um, and it's true through the Cochrane Review, um, especially now that uh, graded talc is available in the U.S. We're seeing almost no uh, incidence of systemic inflammatory response or ARDS. The other agents, such as doxy, don't work as well. Um, Iodine is intriguing. Um, I, I've had colleagues around the world use it and swear by it. Uh, the mechanism there is thought to be due to its extremely low pH. Uh, it can cause significant pain, uh, which tends to happen, I think, less with talc. Uh, but right now, talc is the modality of choice. And since we're on the topic of thoracoscopy and uh, chemical agents, uh, there was another question if, in regards to diagnosis of malignant pleural effusion. Uh, the question re reads, do you still find a pleural biopsy necessary in a patient who has a diagnosis of cancer with the concurrent pleural effusion? I know it's a little vague, but like, when would you consider a pleural biopsy in your practice? So our, our practice is to first sample the pleural fluid with a thoracentesis, um, and we do a large volume thoracentesis to make sure that it is relieving dyspnea, because if the dyspnea does not improve, we have to search for other things that cause the patient to be short of breath, such as pulmonary embolism, tumor embolism, deconditioning, things like that. And also, uh, especially now with uh, improved cytologic markers, I think the yield from thoracentesis is actually better than historical data. Um, that being said, um, it's only probably positive in the 70% range on the initial tap. Um, if we're still concerned that this patient could have a malignant pleural effusion um, and it will change management either by guiding us into uh, the treatment options that we've discussed or change oncologic therapy, 
then we would do a thoracoscopy. And again, we would do thoracoscopy as an outpatient procedure. Uh, we use small instruments, uh, so a seven millimeter, eight millimeter incision, a six millimeter trocar, and um, you could get biopsies with a diagnostic yield approaching 95%. Now, that is slightly different in patients with presumed mesothelioma. Those need bigger biopsies and more tissue. Uh, they need a transition of uh, involved tissue to normal tissue on the pleura, and they also would like tissue that goes down to the endothoracic fascia. So depending on those patients, um, I am a lot more aggressive on my biopsies and, and also have a lower threshold to get my thoracic surgeons involved. Mm -hmm. Uh, Dr. Falakaman, there is a question that I suspect it's directly addressed to you. Do you routinely check intrapleural pressure prior to IPC placement? I don't know if you're seeing that or not, but I, uh, I actually had a similar question like, in regards to the trapped lung and your decision-making process, but let's answer the participant's question. So do you routinely check intrapleural pressure prior to IPC placement? Um, that's a great question. Um, I would perhaps rephrase it a little bit. Do I, and the question is, do I check intrapleural pressure prior to attempting talc pleurodesis? Um, because in order to pleurodese someone, I need the visceral and parietal pleura to oppose each other. And there are several ways that you could identify non-expandable lung. You could do it with ultrasound. Uh, you could do it with post-large volume thoracentesis chest x-ray. Um, you could do it at the time of thoracoscopy, uh, either if done under positive pressure, you know, if somebody's intubated, you could ask the anesthesiologist to inflate the lung, um, or you could apply suction with the semi-rigid scope and see if you could get the lung up. Um, if somebody's getting an IPC, I actually don't care if the lung comes up or not. Um, I care if the patient feels better. Uh, if they feel better with a thoracentesis and the lung doesn't come up, great. I can palliate their dyspnea with the IPC. If the lung does come up, great. I can still palliate their dyspnea with the IPC. They may have a higher chance of quote-unquote autopleurodesis. Um, however, in the AMPLE-2 trial, about 50% of patients with initial non-expandable lung still had um, lung expansion and pleurodesis at six months. Which is I interesting. That, I, I hope that answers the question. Yeah, I, I think so. We'll see what the participant thinks. But um, absolutely, that was actually one of my questions. Have you seen patients with trapped lung that eventually the catheter comes out? And I think you, you just answered that. Um, all right. Realizing we have about 10 to 15 more minutes. Um, um, I just would add one thing uh, quickly yeah. about the, the biopsy. Um, if... A patient is a known lung cancer diagnosis and we have markers, we don't routinely push for it. But um, if it's a new diagnosis suspecting lung cancer, then uh, I would prefer a, a tissue biopsy as well because I mean, there's some centers who are really great at running uh, molecular in-house molecular panels on itty bitty you know, pieces of DNA. But usually for the common labs, we need you know, at least to send off 15 slides. Yeah. So thank you for pointing it out. In fact, we were very fortunate here. We're on the two slides, even from EBUS TBNA, our lab runs like 1,241 genes. As you probably know, Dr. Fiedler, you know, with Dr. Jory Patel, when she was here, we published a few papers on that. Um, okay, moving on to airway obstruction for the rest of the session. 
Um, we know that there is data on safety of bronchoscopy in patients with COVID. Thankfully, based on um, four papers that um, we had the opportunity to review, it seems that with the proper PPE, this intervention is safe and uh, for the operators. Um, we also know that it adds some value in terms of diagnosing superimposed infection. You know, depending on who you read, anywhere between four and sixty percent of people uh, suffering from COVID, if they get a lavage, you may diagnose an additional infection. But what about therapeutic bronchoscopy? Um, is that safe during COVID and what is the modality of choice? And that's where I will have Dr. Eric Adele uh, chime in and comment on uh, his approach to malignant obstruction during the times of COVID. Um, do you, uh, Eric, uh, prefer a certain modality? Do you feel that one it's safer for the operators or for the patient during these times? How has COVID impacted your decision-making in regards to ablative modality stenting for malignant obstruction? So thank you, uh, Tim, and thank you again for the opportunity to participate in the panel. I I've learned quite a bit through the, the first two participants. Uh, the, it's a very interesting dilemma that we have when patients come with malignant airway obstruction. I think if you go back to that first, the slide just before this one, Tim, I think that illustrates a very nice uh, ranking of the various procedures and how we should be looking at that kind of assessment and what we do to patients even without being in a COVID environment. Uh, one of the things that I think we've learned through the COVID pandemic is that not every time that we've done a bronchoscopy in the past, we actually need to do it. And we looked at it a little bit differently. Now, when a patient comes with symptoms, we started looking, I think, a little bit harder at were these due to true airway obstruction, so the malignant category, I mean, I mean intrabronchial uh, obstruction. So initially we started and all patients as I think Dr. Feller-Cotman pointed out, we put all patients under general anesthesia with the rat. We didn't know how safe it was gonna be. So patients went under general anesthesia a lot more than they had. And these were even those that we would have generally done with, with um, maybe moderate sedation or deep sedation and kept them spontaneously breathing for me treating their major airway obstruction. So it did, it did sort of put on, our, uh, put on our minds a little bit different approach, but parenthetically, we continue to manage malignant airway obstruction like we have in the past. So when we manage these patients, the first thing to try and sort out is the type of luminal obstruction that they have and the, the issue of predominantly intraluminal versus predominantly extraluminal will determine the primary modality that would, one would use. When you get into a mixed, you have many more options for, uh, that you can do. So if we had predominantly an intraluminal tumor, most people would still consider options available for uh, intraluminal removal with either flexible or rigid instruments. I think that initially during the pandemic, people moved a little bit less a little bit more toward flexible instruments because they had a better sealed system. That's anecdotal. Uh, but I was talking to a lot of my colleagues, they were doing more cryo resection, more flexible snaring maybe than a rigid with mechanical debridement. 
but I think that we learned that that's not necessary. That if you win a good, reasonably well-protected environment, the system being that closed isn't critical. So I would encourage us to utilize those instruments that provide the most effective, efficient, and safe way. For example, if you're going to go and you have a major uh, obstruction of, we'll, we'll make it easier, right? Main stem obstruction. And you can use a rigid bronchoscope, devascularize and mechanically debreed that. You can usually accomplish that within a matter, less, probably less than an hour. If you start to then use instruments such as cryo debulking, maybe APC, you might extend that procedure by another twofold. Uh, it's just not as efficient. And I think that those are the kinds of things that we, um, as we reflect back to what we might have changed in the COVID environment, but as we go forward, that we need to keep in mind that the tools should be effective and efficient in, uh, in managing the patients with malignant airway obstruction particularly because of the underlying comorbidities. These patients are, are sick. The longer they're under general anesthesia or on the table with us taking care of them, the, the more potential complications they have. Uh, mm -hmm. So in aluminal, still with rigid mechanical uh, debridement, if possible, the utilization of other uh, therapies uh, are still optional. You have the photodynamic therapy that people would use uh, for certain tumors, uh, and when it comes to a uh, extraluminal in the malignant category, I'm not any longer concerned about anything other than, again, expediency. If you can place a self-expanding metal stent and palliate this person it quickly with a flexible instrument, I think that's an effective way of managing them. If, the, if a silicone stent, or if it needs a carinal uh, uh, why stent than a rigid with a, a silicone stent may be the most effective. And then the mixed lesion, uh, you're going to use the combination of all of the above, depending upon things like a patient who's on anticoagulation. If, if they're going to be on and off anticoagulation, you may err on the side of placing some sort of airway prosthesis so that you help with that recurrence of maybe not having to take them off their anticoagulation again, should they grow into the lumen. Uh, those are judgment calls that are hard to do, but there's, there is a reason for a mixed lesion or even an interluminal lesion where they've maxed their therapy, they may be a candidate for some sort of airway prosthesis if they're on anticoagulation. Mm -hmm. uh, in those patients with COVID, I don't think that there's a change where if they have COVID with a malignancy of what tools uh, you might use. Thank you, thank you, Dr. Adele. There is a question from, um, I want to make sure that we're addressing the uh, learners' um, uh, needs. Um, there is a question from one participant in regards to the pros and cons of uh, electrosurgery like APC versus uh, cryotherapy versus PDT. Can you um, walk us through your decision-making process really quick? If you want to use an ablative modality, which one do you usually choose in your practice? And maybe rationalize that in a, in a sentence or two. It's probably my age. I think you get the best you get the best control of bleeding with devices such as a YAG laser or KTP laser. You get better depth of penetration. You can it's more efficient, and mechanical debridement is much easier. Um, APC the depth of penetration with the new instruments is a little bit more, but it's it's not nearly as effective as as the laser therapies. From the standpoint of photodynamic therapy. You can get uh, debulking uh, 
in effectively, but it's delayed. Patients have photosensitivity. So in the order that I just said, cryotherapy, cryodebulking, I could I use it in those areas where I'm having trouble with mechanical debridement potentially. But remember, there's a potential and there's some suggestion of increased bleeding with cryodebulking because you don't get good uh, uh, coagulation. You, you get temporary uh, bleeding control. So laser, uh, probably heat with, with, with uh, APC, cryo, PDT in that order. Thank you for that. And there is a, I actually do have this question for, um, for the three of you, um, but especially for the interventional pulmonologists in this panel, um, given the fact that we'd like to restore airway patency in a more definitive way, maybe avoid repeated interventions during a time of a pandemic. Have you noticed an increase in the number of airway stents um, in your practice in the last 15 months um, or not? I guess it's a yes or no question. I don't know. Yeah, I, I don't think so either. Um, actually, as I've gotten more gray as well, my use of stents has gone down in general. Um, and I, I don't think I've seen it increase over the pandemic. It's a great question. You would be think you'd be tempted to just put in a stent and move on because of the issue. But, but stents have their own associated complications. Yeah. yeah. And that's the voice, voice of wisdom. Um, we have uh, two more minutes, actually. I'd like to have each of you think about a take-home message in regards to what you learned in your practice in regards to managing complications from cancer in the last, um, in the last 15 months that you'd like to share with, the, with our audience. Um, Dr. Fiddler, how about we start with you? I would say that some aspects of patient care has actually improved with the COVID pandemic, and that's with telemedicine. You know, patients who wouldn't necessarily come to the clinic, you know, for weekly checkups because it's too far, it's too much of a hassle, you know, we'll have, you know, telephone visits or video visits, and I think that that's helped. I also think that our um, having COVID in the back of our minds is always there with, you know, patients coming in with new respiratory symptoms. Uh, but we've, you know, been able to, with excellent nursing staff, you know, manage a flow um, it, with uh, procedures in place that have really kept everyone in the cancer center and the patient, including the patients, most importantly, safe um, too. So that has been our motto: that you know, the cancer center is a safe place, and please come for the treatment you know that you need. Thank you, Dr. Feller Kupman. Yeah, I think the two biggest things that I've learned is uh, number one: thank God PPE works. Uh, we're all very scared of um, getting COVID and putting ourselves and our families at risk initially. And uh, with good PPE, we're able to do our jobs safely. And the other thing is um, keep an eye on the literature because it's a changing field. As we pointed out with that NADU article, um, talking about not giving steroids, and then we learned that steroids are actually helpful. So um, don't take what is printed as gospel. Uh, it's, a, it's a moving target. Thank you for that wisdom. And Dr. Eric Adel. Uh, I'm going to second each of the panelists' comments. The telemedicine is here to stay. The PPE is here to stay. We have, I, I think, the, the learning of not getting simple viral infections in the aerosol producing procedural world that we live in, we should be wearing our PPE from now into the future. Uh, it's, it's, it becomes cumbersome sometime, but I can, I'd like to see the, the reduction in viral infections that we've seen other than COVID this winter 
continue as we work in the hospital. And I'd also like to continue to connect the robust connection that we've made with patients when they're in their own environment that we see with telemedicine. So a virtual environment, I think, is good for patient care as we go into the future. I want to thank all of you for taking time away from your practice to share your, your expertise and your institutional practices. I, I trust the learners, the participants appreciate that wisdom. And uh, for all of you participants, um, I am looking forward to seeing you virtually or in person at our national meeting uh, down in Orlando. Stay well and be safe. And thank you for joining us today. Good afternoon, everyone.